And it was the most dangerous negotiations, the one you don't know you're in, because the real gist of a negotiation is not whether or not you got an agreement. The gist is implementation. We used to say yes is nothing without how, and now we say yes is nothing. How is everything? Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 322. Today is Sunday, the 7th of April, 2019. And this interview is with Chris Voss. Chris was the former FBI lead international kidnapping negotiator, and he now runs Black Swan Group, a strategy consultancy. He's also the author of the negotiation bestseller, Never Split the Difference. In this conversation with Chris, we talk about the art of negotiation, the art of making a deal, the role of negotiations in business and in life, how to distinguish between real and fake opportunities, and the role of calm. We talk about the BATNA and various other negotiation techniques, as well as some of his experiences, and the importance of empathy in negotiating, among other big topics. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Chris Voss. It is a great pleasure to have you on the show. I have followed across many different media what you're up to, and there are many things that I I really want to touch base with you on. So thanks for coming on the show, Chris. And in your own words, describe yourself. Who are you? I'm just some guy from Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was uh, the FBI's former lead international kidnapping negotiator run a company now called the Black Swan Group, and uh, we help people accelerate business deals with hostage negotiation strategies. We probably save, people who listen to us probably close a deal in about a third of the time. Wow. Do you think that deal making has changed over this last years, or, or is it essentially the same stuff and with the same human traits that we're dealing with all the time? Has human nature changed? <laughs> we make it change as much as human nature has, and pretty much the data shows us human human nature hasn't changed in five thousand years. So then, what's the difference is is your experiences because you, every negotiation you do all the same is a feather in your cap, is is an experience. You win, lose some, presumably along the way, and that's making up your portfolio and your basis for bringing that into business. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, um, a couple things, uh, interesting points. Um, you don't want every deal. You know, the first assessment is, do you want the deal? And, and maybe even before that, the first assessment is, is there a deal there at all? I mean, I, you know, rough guess, no less than 20%, probably closer to 80% of the business opportunities people encounter are fake opportunities. And so one of the reasons why so many people, when we coach them, cut so much out, put, give themselves back so much more time is, you know, how do you assess whether or not it's a legitimate opportunity right up front instead of, you know, there's a saying in sales, it's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. And that's one of the reasons why we accelerate deal making so much is, you know, we're going to put 
it's counterintuitive, but we're going to put some screening devices and a communication right up front to find out whether or not it's a fake deal. One says that at some level you're always selling yourself. And I'm just wondering if you could put a, a containment element to how much of business is negotiation. Because at some level I could say asking someone for a cup of coffee is a negotiation. You know, getting a date with somebody is a negotiation. Uh, then asking for a million-dollar contract is a, is a real negotiation. So h- how do you frame when and where negotiation stops and starts? Uh, somebody's trying to get somebody else to say, yes, you're in a negotiation. If the words I want are in your brain, you're in a negotiation. The most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, I, and I love the cup of coffee analogy because uh, – uh, ran across a speaker not too long ago. Uh, he started a website, I think, called Secrets. We encourage people to send them their secrets anonymously. He gets a, uh, he's telling me he gets a, a brand new, still in a wrapper, Starbucks cup, sort of as a proof of identity. <laughs> and uh, the person sent him a note that said, I give decaf to people who are mean to me. <laughs> Now, as a negotiator, I would say that, that was a negotiation, and it was the most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in, because the real gist of a negotiation is not whether or not you got an agreement. The gist is implementation. We used to say yes is nothing without how, and now we say yes is nothing. How is everything? So you're in a Starbucks, and you engage in that negotiation poorly, and you know that poor schmuck is like, wow, I'm building up a tolerance to caffeine. It just doesn't give me the same <laughs> kick that it used to. Well, so then there is this notion of, of how, and maybe transparency in the mechanisms and the ability for other people to say, well, he's a real shit or not, is more accessible than in the past. Um, what makes it more accessible? Well, the fact is that I, if, I, if I'm having a negotiation, you don't even know about it, by the way. I'm negotiating with you, Chris, and I, I employ some bad things. Then Chris goes off and, and tells that some other people that's sort of where it was 30 years ago. Now, Chris can go up and type a little post on Twitter or something like that, Minter's an asshole, and, and now more people know about my deviousness. Yeah, interesting. Um, you know, that saying, do something right, three people know about it, do something wrong, 12 people know about it. <laughs> you know, that was invented before the Internet. Yeah. So I think word of mouth has been something we should always be conscious of. Right. You know, um, so I wouldn't I, I don't know if it's any less or any more. Hmm. Um, there's so many trolls out there that we're going to expect negativity. Hmm. I mean, at, at this point in time. If I got four people criticizing me, I know I got 40 people that are on my side. So, you know, we are, I think, um, the media, social media, uh, the feedback we get is to be ultra concerned about rock throwers, critics, trolls. But is it any more of a problem in our day-to-day operations? That's, that's an interesting question. So, Chris, in, in your background, and I, I have one very long-term friend who has also been a negotiator in similar space to you. And I wonder, you know, you, you've been in this t- 
tough negotiation world. And, and how do you describe the transferable skills that come from the world of negotiating hostages to getting that cup of coffee? <laughs> or, or, you know, obviously more mundane business matters of getting a, a million dollar contract or, or, you know, saying getting a new supplier? Ah, the skills are a thousand percent transferable. I mean, there, there were there were moments when, when we wrote uh, we wrote the book, never split the difference. There were aspects of hostage negotiation, and, and there's really two types of hostage negotiation contained, where you got the bad guys trapped in a bank or wherever, and you got them surrounded, and uh, then there's uncontained, which is kidnappings. Um. So I thought that there were elements of both that didn't really apply. And since a book is out, it all applies. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I'll take a hostage negotiator who's good at what he does. And I'll say, handle this business negotiation or build this simulation or give me your thoughts on what you should say. And if they're fresh out of hostage negotiation, they'll say, well, I, I don't know. I never did business negotiations before. And I'll say, OK, pretend it's a hostage siege. And tell me what you'd say. Just stick to your gut instincts. Stop worrying about whether or not it's right or wrong. And if they're good at what they do, they're always right. One of the things that struck me in speaking to my friend Laurent about this is that when you're in that kind of a situation where life and death is a reality, and then you come back into selling more lipsticks or you know, more widgets, and it's just not exactly the same weight... How have you managed that personally, Chris? Yeah, well, the same way everybody should. Um, you know, our biggest problem is our biggest problem. And so if, my, if I get bent out of shape today because my internet didn't come on, <laughs> um, you know, I should probably, I should spend some time volunteering in a cancer ward if I want to be reminded what real problems are. Um, and I get far enough away from the actual life and death scenarios. You know, I've, I've been out of uh, I've been out of the FBI about ten years now. You know that I've forgotten. Um, you know, I'm. It's been over ten years since I was in Baghdad, and the people I interacted with might be mutilated just because they spoke to me, and some were. So it's a perspective that we all lose. It's a human nature perspective. And, you know, you don't, you don't got to go to Baghdad to remind you that your life is probably pretty good. Hmm. So you, are, you, you, you run, you founded the Black Swan uh, Strategy Consultancy. So first of all, I want yeah, to know. Yeah, we're a bunch of ballerinas. That was a movie. I'm sorry. Right, of course. Of course, I, I love ballet. Um, <laughs> The, what I was interested in is is the link between negotiation and creation of a strategy, and and help us understand why it's negotiation that helps you become a strategy consultant. Find us that that link. Well, we're negotiation consultants and coaches. Um, you know the the skills are applicable to all sorts of human nature human interactions, whether it's leadership, whether you're leading, you know, you're managing up, you're managing down. But we, we you know, we focus on negotiations. And, you know, there, there is a limitation. The strategies only apply where people are involved. Right. Got it. <laughs> um, so I, I um, was listening to a recent CNBC interview that you did, Chris. And so it's very topical. It's very United States because it deals with the President Trump. And uh, it... Who? 
yeah. <laughs> no one knows about him over here. And um, and you were commenting on the negotiation style of Trump, and uh, and specific to a the the federal uh, shutdown and everything. And you said people make their decision over what's the the biggest loss. Right. And I, I was like, oh, I stopped in on that. I was like, all right. So that a assumes that they know their biggest loss because you know, like you said in the beginning. You know, do you know you're in a negotiation? Have you made, have you done the, the work to think what is your biggest loss? And then I just wanted to para, or parallel that with something that I learned at, at business school, um, thanks to my wonderful Belgian uh, negotiation teacher, Ingmar Dikeritz, which was always know your BATNA. He used this term, the BATNA, the best alternative to no agreement. And he said, that is what you always need to establish. So can you help me through understanding the notions of the biggest loss versus the best alternative to no agreement? Yeah, all right. So let, let's, uh, let's, let's, let me bash Batna for a little Go bit. Go for it. Huh? <laughs> you know, Batna. That's what I remember. Uh, now, Batna is an intellectually sound concept. And um, intellectually sound. And, and I understand, I mean, I... I I interacted with the Harvard people. I met Roger Fisher a few times. The guys that invented this, and 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 I know why they invented it. They they want you to not be held hostage in a negotiation. They want to be give yourself a psychological out, saying like, "Look, if I don't make this deal, I got somewhere to go." Now that's intellectually sound. Unfortunately, it's emotionally fraught with peril, because now if you're determined that you have to have an out, you've just taken yourself hostage. What do you do if you got no batna? You know, I, 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 I find it irrelevant because I started out with negotiations going like, uh, you know, don't talk to me about BATNA. We've got to get in here and we've got to do a good job without allowing ourselves to be taken hostage by BATNA. So then to take it further, when, when we're teaching, you know, myself and my son and, and the other people that tow along with me in business school, now I can change your performance by moving your BATNA. Your baton is an artificial construct that you create in your head. And so we thought, all right, so since it's not real, what happens if we tell people they have to do better because we raised the baton? And lo and behold, they do better because we change this artificial imaginary construct. And we said, all right, so let's lower the baton and see if we can change our performance. Understanding we didn't change a single actual condition that existed in reality. We changed this pretend construct and we lowered the bad end. You know what? They did worse. Right. So, so that's, 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 we're, we're taken hostage by bad end if we are determined that we need it. All right. So then, then if I, if I take biggest loss and in this specific case, we're referring to Trump's losing his base and he, he considered right. that his biggest loss. Is that not tantamount to a hostage situation? He's hostage to his base. Well, yeah, let's go back and let's dig into that, too, because the one thing then is you said that you have to know what their loss is. Most people don't. It's an instinctive reaction. Um, and I wish I would have invented the concept because then I would be up for the Nobel Prize, which Danny Kahneman got the Nobel Prize in behavioral economics. Nice. You know, doggone it. You know, he beat me to it. Kahneman and Tversky came up with prospect theory. Um, I, we came to know it was... Uh, true concept, but we thought it only applied to hostage negotiation because a hostage negotiator from the beginning is driving to find out what the other the loss the other side has experienced 
identify it. They're going to be, it's going to be eating at them. They're probably not going to know what it is. But we use our tools to uncover it gently and then to simply mitigate it and make it go away because it's all imaginary. And then we found out uh, Danny Kahneman comes along 2002, wins a Nobel Prize in behavioral economics because this drives all human behavior. So I wish I would have invented it. I'd love to claim credit for it. You know, I get my, you know, I, I could use I could use Nobel Prize winner, but it ain't gonna, never going to happen. Well, you know, you got to go to Stockholm. Uh, I've been there. You know? <laughs> Stockholm, <laughs> Stockholm Centrum. There you go. I bet. So um, another thing you said, which I also picked up on, and I found it, it just, you know, somehow you read things and things just drop, you know, hit you like a, a brick. You said calm is contagious. Patience preserves relationships. Once you understand that patience and silence is a weapon, you can use it to great effect. I was like, all right, well, that, that sounds like me. And then I, I think of people who get irate, who, who, right. who go crazy ballistic. And sometimes that works. And, I'm, and I think, oh, well, that, God, that guy really flipped a lid. And, so, and, and at times it actually can be compelling because there's more passion in it. God damn it, you got to get this thing done. All right, listen, you know, Sam Harris, you, you know, right, rational, calm. Talk us through why calm is so powerful, and because it, it makes sense to me. But is there a place to be angry and get irate? Yeah, well, anger is an addiction, um, and it becomes addictive because short term it can be very effective. I mean, there's an actual term called strategic umbrage, and there's. You know, let's use Trump terminology. But, you know, Trump says fake news. Let's talk about fake data. You know, there's fake data out there that justifies that strategic umbrage is good. Anytime somebody's got a study about something, take a look at how they collected the data. They collected the data that it works in artificial construct situations. They were pretend negotiations. And there's all sorts of shortcomings and problems with that data. But why do, why do academics use that down on a regular basis? Because they can control it and then call it rigorous and they can reach conclusions. And you got to be careful of your data because, you know, some people's data says playing basketball makes you tall. I mean, understand where the data come from, came from and what your interpretation is. Mm. So in reality, anger always leaves a negative residue that people do not get over. And I can get what I want in this deal by being angry. But number one, it's going to interfere with the implementation. And again, yes is nothing without how. How is everything. The devil's in the details. How are you going to implement if you're still stinging from the toxic anger I used to get the deal? So I'm going to be lucky if the deal gets implemented at all. And I can guarantee you that if I took you hostage with my anger, your implementation is not going to be at 100%. And now, how anxious are you to deal with me again? Hmm. Well, I'll fear you. If, right. if and, you screamed at me and you got angry at me, well, there might be a domination component, but there's definitely, uh, I'm not really keen to have be screamed at again. Right. And so, and this is, this is um, an affliction of us Recovering assertives. Um, Donald Trump's natural born type is assertive. My natural born type is assertive. I've, I've gone down this path. How many deals 
does Donald Trump get in any one location before he has to move on? One or two. He hasn't put up a building in New York City in 30 years. He had the, the what was supposed to be the largest real estate development in the history of mankind, the West Side Railroad Project. He'd had several stunning successes up to before then. The Grand Central Station, phenomenal success. Trump Tower, phenomenal success. Woman Skating Ring, phenomenal success. And then suddenly he can't get anything done. And he ends up, if you dig into the history of the West Side Railroad Yards, he planned to put up the tallest building in the world there. It was going to be the largest real estate development ever. And then it just went away. And it went away for 30 years because he wouldn't give up his peace to it and no one would do business with him. And now the West Side Railroad Yards are being developed without his involvement. And that's what happens to the assertive negotiator. He uses anger to get their way because I remember hearing stories of Trump being in business negotiations where he kicked chairs across the room and got his way. And then all of a sudden, no one talks to him anymore. And he doesn't put up deals. He goes to Atlantic City, several stunning successes with casinos. Then all of a sudden, nothing. And that's what happens. An assertive has to go from place to place to place because they burn people out and then no one will deal with them ever again. That's exactly what he's starting to experience now as president and how we got into the shutdown because he had several negotiations with opposition political um, party Democrats and they thought they reached deals with him and then he changed his mind. And they thought they had the shutdown uh, averted, and he backtracked and he yelled at people. And now, no people that deal with him, they're getting they're tired of getting yelled at, and they don't know what he's going to do. And you're starting to see what happens to this sort of angry, threatening negotiator. People just get tired of their act, and they stop doing business with them. You've got questions. We've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So I want to pick up on one uh, maybe connecting thought, which is on the other side of assertive, he also says, I really want loyal people. And, And what it makes me think of is that as an assertive, you necessarily repel, and therefore that's what he's looking for to compensate for the repulsion. Yeah, the the they're only to the assertive. There's only two people um, in their world: uh, the enemy and the conquered. Hmm. Uh, there aren't any peers. There are only the people to be conquered and those that have been conquered. And, and the, the vast majority of us don't fit into either of those two categories. And the conquered, in this case, he equates them to being loyal. Right. He, he always says, I want loyal. All right. The other thing I wanted to ask, because you've done this in so many places around the world, Chris, is 
we have cultural differences. You know, so come, I would almost say, let's say, the Japanese have have it in on come. <laughs> you know, as opposed, really? well, I mean, they, let's say at some level, you know, the, the tatame, the tea service, there is a, a, a sense of calm in that tradition. And what I'm, my point is that culturally, uh, what is a raised voice in one culture is nothing in another. I mean, you know, there are just certain cultures where being voluble and aggressive, that's just, you know, chutzpah. And, and in other places, that might be uh, considered overwhelming. So I was wondering how, how do you nuance that culturally when you're faced with somebody in front of you? Do you have to adapt what is calm and, you know, how you can push it? Well, our culture is layered, what were we first? Culture is layered over what we were first. And what we were first is human beings. We're, everyone's born with the same basic architecture in our heads. It's called the limbic system. It all, everyone has it. It's, we're, it's all the same components. It's very much like the respiratory system. It operates pretty much the same way. You can control your breathing to some degree, but by and large, your respiratory system kicks back into gear. It's unconscious. It's the same way as your emotional architecture in your brain. Now, while there are many different cultures in the world, psychologists and psychotherapists around the world have one book that catalogs our dysfunctions, the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual of Mental Disorders. And there's one book for the globe. There isn't a book for Arabs and a book for Asians and a book for Western Europeans. We're all in the same book. And hostage negotiation skills, that's why myself and the other hostage negotiators you're acquainted with use the same basic skills regardless of the continent that they're on. But, I mean, looking in the eyes, for example, is I'm told, you know, there's sometimes you should duck the eyes and not be aggressive with the eyes. If I show you the palm of my hand, for some people that might be very dirty, especially if it's the, the, right, the left hand. And so there are cultural nuances in the behaviors that we have. And, and, and even if there's a limbic system... We're, we're brought up, and, and you, you bring that baggage. So I'm, if someone throws a shoe at me, well, in one night culture, that's considered, and I, I'm going to take that symbolic shoe flying as just the worst thing you could ever do for me. Oh, well, what's the big deal? It's a slipper for right. someone else. So, so it's, it's, it's okay to throw a shoe at somebody in another in another. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, so the shoe, shoe, the shoe flying uh, is essentially a Middle Eastern issue, and I don't, I'm not specific to it because I don't know. I've never tried throwing a shoe, but you do have cultural context for behavioral uh, ticks or behavioral signals. Right. I didn't. I didn't say it didn't. I said it was layered over right. our human nature wiring. Got it. Yeah. All right, so Chris, the other thing I really wanted to get into, and and uh, it was an, an immense podcast that I really appreciated with Sam Harris. First of all, straight out, big fan of Sam Harris, as is my wife, and we were both talking just before at dinner about the fact that uh, we listened to that separately, your conversation with Sam, and both remembered it and liked it. You you talk, thank you, um, and uh, you're most welcome. You, we you talk in that about empathy. And at some level, as a negotiator in difficult situations, it, d- it doesn't strike me as the place where empathy happens. But you, you opened my eyes to it, and you talked about the role of empathy in negotiation. So just first of all, 
Give us a little bit more muscle around that, and then we're going to talk about my specific question. I'm glad you asked that because I, you know, um, I came across recently some writing a little bit more about the origin of the word, and um, uh, among the definitions, originally a German word that I can't pronounce that was translated into English uh, as empathy, but they were really trying to make the point that empathy is the transmission of information and compassion and sympathy are the reactions to that information. Mm -hmm. So you look much, look at empathy much more as a transmission of information Mm. and, and you see it coming up that way more and more when people are really focused down on what is empathy. It's not sympathy. It's not compassion. Empathy is the transmission of the information, sympathy and compassion are the reactions to the information. Now, it's gotten very convoluted in usage globally to come to mean sympathy and compassion, mm-hmm. uh, which both of which are admirable characteristics that may well flow from the transmission of the information. But if you step it back and just allow it to be the transmission of the information, then it becomes a much more universal skill and, and then quite powerful. Well, so where there you we are talking about cognitive empathy where it really is something Goldman's you, definition yeah where you can see it coming you understand it the context the individual in a certain situation you see the emotions and you can configure effective empathy where i feel literally i feel the shit that you're feeling that mm. that that will Change my comportment afterwards, and and I think it has a different. It's a different type of information that I'm receiving, and it, it makes it more visceral and probably harder to separate into a, a useful return action and reaction that may or may not be compassionate, may or may not be sympathetic, in a, in a cognitive empathetic empathetic manner. But, well, it sounds to me like you're talking about the reception and then the reaction. That's right. But I'm saying that if you're in the affective empathy where I, I feel the anger that you're feeling, I start feeling that anger. That's the the, 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 the affective empathy. So the information... Affective. The affective, right. Where I'm feeling the same feelings you're feeling. It's, that's the reception of information I'm getting. But it's in a visceral manner as opposed to understanding the transmission of information because I see that Chris is upset. Chris is probably upset because his toy to his right is broken and I can see that that's his situation. The the effective component is where I'm starting blubbing because you're blubbing. And I'm, I'm not doing that to make you better. I'm just, that's the way I am receiving the information. So anyway, the point is that we're focused on the cognitive empathy where you are receiving the information then you get to decide afterwards how you want to react right okay. with the empathy so you say that empathy is perishable in your podcast with with Sam Harris empathy is perishable a perishable skill you need to use it to keep it mm-hmm. and i was wondering how how you go about that because you know, a lot of people ask me because I've written this book, Artificial Empathy. How do you train empathy? How do you keep it? Uh, if you have it, and if you don't have it, how do you get it? 
Yeah, we get into some really interesting distinctions in, in the way you're constructing the questions as to what's the distinction between empathy and what's the distinction between emotional intelligence or empathy mm. receptors mm-hmm. or the, the, neurotran- the neurosynapses that are picking up in our brain. Um, and, and, and to maybe put more a fine point on what I was talking about with Sam, you know, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a performance skill. You know, the application of it maybe. Uh, the application of it, our empathy receptors, our ability to hear it, our ability to uh, consciously understand what our unconscious is picking up. Um, yeah, it's it's perishable. It's um, uh, no less perishable than playing golf or playing basketball or playing any sort of performance sport. And when you really drill down into it, you, you begin to understand uh, some of the how people are having trouble defining it with the blurred lines. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jim Camp, who wrote the book in, back in Start With No in 2002, again, same time frame as Kahneman, um, he used to call negotiation a performance skill that was perishable. Um, mm-hmm. We're seeing emotional intelligence. It's not whether or not you are born with it. We all are. Or we're all born with all sorts of skills. You know, how much time do we spend actually paying attention to the synaptic connections in our brain and consciously developing them? You know, uh, Daniel Cole, who wrote The Talent Code, would contend that there is no genius, that people just started on their 10,000 hours before anybody realized they did. So interesting question as to, you know, what are we born with and, and what's innate and what is simply nourished? So, nurtured. So in, in your world, initially in negotiation with hostages, you talked about the importance of empathy and, and, and practicing it. In, in your world today, where you're not necessarily having to do that kind of a negotiation, you're in another type of world, what are the things that you do, Chris, to help bring empathy or practice empathy? Are there little tips and tricks that you are employing to help keep that skill alive? Yeah, I'm, tr- I'm just trying to evolve it in my daily conversations. And uh, there's enough depth and breadth to the skills that I realize that my gut instincts uh, for different skills at different times um, I have lessened and I'm going to have to spend more time on them. But it's definitely, we like to say, small stakes practice for high stakes results. Uh, going back to the, getting a cup of coffee or ordering something. I mean, th- these are opportunities to take a few moments to to apply some of the skills. And as a mercenary and as a missionary, whoever you do it with, they're going to really appreciate the moment. They're going to feel seen and heard. They're going to feel less like um, a robot behind the counter and more like a human being that the other person recognized. So the fringe benefit is it's going to make most of your life a lot more enjoyable because you make the people around you much happier. The mercenary benefit is, you know, you're just trying to get better communication. Right. So in a mercenary environment where you have a specific task and an outcome that you're looking for, you're you're employing empathy for a specific result. But there you're very consciously employing empathy. Is that what you consider? So therefore, at some level... The cynic might say, well, that's being manipulative because you're really just doing it in order to get the outcome for you. Right. Yeah. Well, the cynic is going to complain about everything. Is, <laughs> is, 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 is that not true? I that mean, it is true, especially in yeah. today's world. 
Right. One 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 man's influence is another man's manipulation. Mm-hmm. You tell a woman you're she's beautiful. Well, you're just trying to get something out of her. You know, so and but but it, you know, it's it's a good thing for people to consider cuz it comes up on a regular basis and what I typically do is I'll pull out my phone and say how many of you have these? Well, everybody does. Well, you know, there's some really bad people using those phones to commit some really heinous crimes. How dare you have a phone? You're using the same tool that murderers and killers use. How dare you? And then you just recognize it as a tool, and it's really, you know, what are you trying to accomplish as opposed to are you using a tool? Because then we get into sociopaths, and I think you mentioned the notion that sociopaths are very effective or very good at empathy. Because they, right. when they want to do something to somebody, they're employing their empathic skill, their muscle, the empathic muscle is at maximum velocity, right. understanding the situation, am I going to get this person the way I want? Right, right, right. It's a, it's a point that Goleman makes also uh, in his book Focus when he talks about cognitive empathy. Right. He, he said the people that are best at it are the sociopaths. Right. So then you're back into the point of knowing you're in a negotiation or not. And, and being aware that the other person is being, let's say, crudely empathic to get what they want out of you. Right. And, and it's really becoming aware of what they want out of me. Like, I don't, I don't have a problem. You know, we used to say there's no problem with having a tiger by the tail. Just don't kid yourself as to whether or not you're holding on to a tiger. <laughs> right. The last thing that you said on the Sam Harris podcast that I really dug into, you said that how important it is that the verbal skills line up with the corresponding treatment. So that I, I, I Robin Sharp, right. someone I love, he says that your audio needs to align with your video. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I thought that was really. Did that the way it, you didn't exactly elaborate on it, but it it sounded like that's about establishing trust. Would that be a fair or explain to me why that's important? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, and it'll line up really quickly like this. Substitute the word predictability in for trust. All right, so if you say one thing and you do another, either you're unpredictable or it's predictable that you will not do what you say. And if you say one thing and your actions line up with what you said, you're now eminently predictable. And as a consequence, trust flows really strongly from being predictable. People know what to expect from you. They trust what you're going to do. Beautiful. Chris, um, thanks for coming on the show. I'm going to give you back your time. Um, How would you like anyone to track you down, follow you, not hack you, but, you know, uh, figure out what you're up to? What's the best way to to connect with you? Well, the the website is blackswan.com. LTD.com, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. Now, on the website, we've got a blog, and we've got a subscription uh, to the blog that's free. You subscribe to the blog, you're going to get a concise once-a-week email from us, very useful negotiation tips, emphasis on the word concise, and then it's also the gateway to everything else, training announcements, discussions of other free training material we get you know we got a lot of material that's free we push a lot of content out there to supplement everything else and so you take advantage of the resources that we offer you for free you're going to get a long way you're going to get a lot of a lot of good at it 
you decide you want to step your game up and get into the top 1%, um, we got special in-person training for that also. But that might not be worth it for you. You might just want to get a little bit better. You get a little bit better, you're going to be even a little bit better. You'll be really pleased with how much of a difference it makes in your life. And never split the difference. Never split the difference. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Chris. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Josh Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray.
The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.